0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark. I'm here with Trevor. How are you feeling today, Trevor?
1: Uh, I feel pretty good. I feel like a candle that's been being burned at both ends. How do you feel?
0: I feel like uh, maybe a low-level Pokemon trainer today, just one that's kind of grinding up -hmm. through the levels.
1: Correct. You're just starting out. Your humble
2: beginnings.
0: Yeah, I'm not like a lame bug catcher, though. Maybe like... (laughs) Maybe one of the ones that one of the ones that has, you know this always bugged me, but maybe I'm one of those guys. one of the ones that has like a trio of all <laughs> Pokemon, but he has one of each, and they're all the same level for some reason. you know, like he's got all a right. machop, a machoke and a machamp, and they're all level like <laughs> thirty eight or whatever. The like. Two what about the ones? Side.
1: Aren't there a few Pokemon trainers in the beginning that have like they just have three of just the basic one?
0: It's like they yeah have, like, yeah three, three Weedles that are level four. Weedles. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> it's just like dude, I already killed this one. Let's
0: go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're all just identical. Right. You, they just... you
1: didn't kill them; you made them faint. Let's be clear. Here. Yeah, 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 There's they no faint
0: Pokemon. So I feel like one of those one of those people today. That stand and look in one direction and then if someone if you walk in front of them then
1: that's, <laughs> if the, main, that's if the main character happens to wander by
0: yeah otherwise just just hanging out nice so anyways we took a uh, took a couple weeks off to refresh in the meantime i went to a book sale bought bought a ton of books um right. my family and i here we bought like so so many books a lot of a lot of kids books i got a lot for myself
1: dude sometimes uh, it happens it great. you just you happen upon something and it's like it's go time
0: yeah it was fantastic the the stack and the, like the the haul that we got was impressive but nice. so i got a lot of stuff in the pipeline uh what i read today is you know one of those that i that i got Nice. I bought on on name recognition, and you'll you'll see later. But, anyways, for the first part of the episode here, the intro, I thought we could discuss an article that I saw on Mm -hmm. polygon.com. And this article, yep, this article is called Science Fiction Has Been Radically Reimagined Over the Last 10 Years. Seven science fiction pros explain about how everything in the genre is changing. Mm-hmm. So we're we're sci-fi fans. I mean, I haven't yeah, read enough I'm, new I'm sci-fi, modern sci-fi, but this article's kind of letting me know yeah, what it's all about.
1: I'm definitely a sci-fi fan, but I also think that I'm definitely guilty of, you know, kind of what this article is talking about is that in the last 10 years, you know, how much sci-fi have you read? And I'm definitely, I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast before, probably not only in the sci-fi genre, but like I feel like the whole journey with readings started out with, like, I should I should have read this classic book. And I'm still at that stage with sci-fi, too, where it's like the stage that I'm at with sci-fi is that, like, I've read Arthur C. Clarke.
0: Yeah, know, I know. There's too much. not the
1: new, like, you know, kid on the block.
0: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's too much canon, too much canon to, like, catch up on. You know, mm-hmm. I think maybe 2021 should be about the new stuff to make a shift.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because that's also like an impossible goal that I think that you meet being a reader is like, okay, like all the classics of literature. And it's like, dude, if you do that, you're never going to get to modern.
0: <laughs> yeah, never. exactly. And that's kind of, you know, there's a downside to that because not all the classics are great and uh, <laughs> you can waste a lot of time mm-hmm. on something that, you know, maybe you might end up coming to the conclusion that it's not a classic for you. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I just kind of like went through and highlighted some of the ideas from, uh, the people who they interviewed in this article. Um, a lot of them were editors for different publications. Uh, let's see, Tor books, T O R, uh, Asimov science fiction, Clark's world, um another podcast host, the Nerdette Podcast.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh Orbit Books. Uh so yeah, let's uh the I think the the, the first one that I saw or I
1: honestly uh, lost track of who was who and I was just
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> reading <laughs> you
1: know what they had to say.
0: Well yeah, I went and highlighted a lot of the I went and highlighted the ideas on how sci fi is shifting and then I highlighted some of the books that they um you know recommended for for reading so for mm-hmm. like checking out those shifts in sci-fi and one of the first things that they said was there's been a shift from the chosen individual to an ensemble cast in sci-fi right. which i yep. think is a That's good the first thing, thing
1: they said yeah yeah no longer like hey it's the main character being all sciencey
0: yeah or and they're like you know either are just Incredibly gifted, or whatever they just have, you know, I don't know. Sci-fi could be anything, but like uh, powers or discoveries, or like all the circumstances around one person just happen to be like so perfect. Right. But I think an ensemble cast is is good. It's a good shift because that you know requires a lot more skill
2: and uh-huh.
0: you know creativity, I guess, to kind of spread the wealth in character development.
1: Also, more potential to become an HBO series.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that was the one thing they said, uh, like the Expanse series, and isn't that a show? The Expanse, I don't, it's yeah, like, the Expanse I don't know movie. if that's a show based on a book or they both just have the same name, but I've watched some of
2: that show. It's pretty cool. Few,
1: one episode, I think I've seen. But yeah, that, that was like an interesting idea that they put out there.
0: Yeah, I thought that that was pretty cool. And um recommending also based on that, uh Anna Lee Newitz's The Future of Another Timeline. And I don't know if that is a series or a book, but like I said, Which, I by just the way, kind of this
1: this article was like one of those types of articles where it's definitely like my uh Amazon Saved for Later cart expen- expanded with lots of different sci-fi from this article. Yeah. <laughs> one of those things that you come along and you're like, Oh yeah, I don't really know too much about that. And then it's like that this person's awesome and this person's awesome. And all of a sudden you're like, Hmm, my <laughs> Amazon cart is like $200 of hard, hardcover books. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, and another thing that was obviously discussed a lot, cause how could you not was how the pandemic is affecting sci-fi writing. And I guess we won't know
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, too much about that until years to come you know same thing for like music and other art and all that but
1: yeah but they seem to agree that a lot of the stuff so far isn't direct it's very indirect so like they're not they they were saying that they're not really getting stories where it's like here we are in the pandemic or somebody is locked down it's more like people are isolating feelings you know associative feeling another thing that i thought was cool like towards the end was like someone was saying like They don't really receive like things that are like direct references to Trump, like being a tyrant or anything like that. It's like they 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 receive more stuff that's about like bureaucratic bodies as a whole, like oppressing people, which I thought was interesting. It's like people are not really like stabbing right into the heart of coronavirus being like my sci fi novel is about (laughs) locked down.
0: Yeah, because that wouldn't, you know, that wouldn't be interesting. We're all living that. It's it's like the ideas that this spawns, you know, just the isolation and all all the other kind of effects of all this. And I think I think we're gonna see a lot of interesting stuff come out of it. Um and I think well what I saw what I noticed in this article is that a lot of uh, these editors, I mean, I think they're seeing, they they have a lot of stories like submitted to them. So they're kind of, they're way upstream as far as like what's coming through the pipeline. And mm-hmm. uh, no, I guess the coolest thing that they seemed all seem to agree on that is that uh, in the last 10 years, like some of the barriers to the, like the barriers of uh, entry or whatever have been mm-hmm. removed, you know, with mm-hmm. online submissions and with you know being people being able to twitch their or sorry tweet their ideas or mm-hmm. pitch their ideas i think i just combined tweet and pitch
1: twitch <laughs> you you with twitch people are yeah. twitch on twitching their ideas as well people yeah. are streaming on twitch their sci-fi ideas someone else. yeah
0: there i wonder if there are any writers on twitch that'd be interesting but i writing um,
1: sessions with yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah a lot of people being able to just submit their ideas online and it's taken the barriers of entry away and they're seeing stories coming from places that aren't, you know, mainstream resources or, you know, different countries, different, uh, different types of people.
1: Yeah. That was and, something I would never think about, but is obvious when you say it is like, once your submissions are online, you just get submissions from like India and, yeah. and you know,
0: yeah. all different, every continent. Yeah. Every
2: continent, yeah. <laughs>
0: different perspectives and everything broader broader range of stories to tell which is really cool
2: Mm
1: -hmm. well did you see that part in the article that like that was one of the things i think was the most fascinating was like they were talking about like i mean sci-fi people because they know about all the magazine stuff but they were like just casually mentioning like oh yeah there's that there's like a chinese magazine that's like a sci-fi chinese magazine that's been around since 1979 and I was like, damn, like that thing must be crazy.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it's like still going. And I and you know, they were like, we tr- we've been doing some translations like of Chinese sci-fi. I'm like, what? I'm
0: like yeah. re- ready to read that. And that's uh that's one thing I wanted to bring up. I was gonna ask you, what what's the newest sci-fi that you have read?
1: It's hard to say because it depends on what you like classify as sci-fi, because it's like okay so i read that like gene wolf book right that was yep. like like kind of like sci-fi sword and
0: whatever it's yeah like. i think that counts that's like the 80s though right
1: yeah it's like a long time ago but also like i don't know does murakami like count as sci-fi or is he too like ooh, i'm a literary person mm-hmm. but it's like dude like 1q84 is about like people like traveling through time because they saw the moon <laughs> i don't know but nothing nothing that was like considered strictly sci-fi i i really honestly don't oh you know what it is it's definitely like mary doria russell who i talked about the sparrow that's from like 2000 something
0: oh okay cool um and like kind of connecting to the point like you're talking about you know sci-fi from china being uh translated that was the most recent one that i've read have you ever heard of the three body problem i'm sure you've seen it in the bookstore if you look it up now because it's got the body problem the three body problem and it's by chinese author um leo Mm,
2: oh
0: okay i i've seen a, a in a lot of bookstores is like highlighted and um that's the first of a three book series i think extremely popular in china and was uh very well regarded
2: Mm. when it
0: was translated to english i think in 2015 2017 somewhere in that range
1: that's like the big sci-fi award
0: yeah 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 so that was a very interesting sci-fi and it's definitely different from the other sci-fi that i read it's like less fantastical and more kind of Science based, which is actually pretty interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. you ca- you encounter that with um, like what's the one you read with the uh, cylindrical sea? Like that seemed like it had a lot of yeah the actual kind of. That. Yeah, that it seemed like it had a like lot of actual science and in it, physics and stuff. Yeah,
1: there's yeah. like a sub, there's a sub genre of sci-fi called like hard sci-fi where it's hard like, oh, this five, is yeah. like this is like based on like a mathematical paper.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's part of the three-body problem because if you you know if you look up what the three-body problem is, it's uh, like the gravitational field of of three you know uh, three stars orbiting each other. That sort Mm -hmm. of thing so it creates like a unique patterns and you know it's an interesting problem of physics and yeah so that that was the latest i read that was pretty cool and that was you know another new thing that we've been able to have is you know stories from other countries and translated uh so where do you see sci-fi going now
1: Oh,
0: God. It used to be, be, you know, like, you could project to 2020. Like, let's say even this dumb example, like, Back to the Future, you know, Mm -hmm. they predicted the hoverboard or whatever, because you could just think of all these fantastical, amazing things. And, you know, we get to 2020, and we don't (laughs) have that stuff yet. So, (laughs) hoverboard... A real hoverboard is still sci-fi those like little segue things are not hoverboards even though they call them
1: i mean i feel like sci-fi just like everything else is gonna get dominated by coronavirus like reactions it's gonna be like there it's gonna there's gonna be like 10 different movies and books and stuff about like this you know spaceship they're in the middle of nowhere and they can't leave or they get locked down because of this. And it's like, yep, that's like what we all did. That's the only prediction I can make or some, or somebody writes a thing, like you said, like hoverboards and te- and like advanced tech is something that you wish like happened. Like maybe someone will write a sci-fi where it's like, and we can all teleport out of our bedrooms, like at the click of a button. Yeah. <laughs> and
2: like, you know,
0: <laughs> Uh even, you know, I guess little parts of infinite jest would be sci-fi as far as just the uh that what do you call it when it's realized to sci-fi? Like the the whole part with like wearing masks for video calls and you know being uncomfortable being in like voice chat and video chat and stuff. That's mm-hmm. a twenty twenty reality, but uh I I could actually see things going in the opposite direction where I could see a lot more like escapism where sci-fi, there's a lot of like utopia sci-fi where all the problems in the world are fixed. And it's like, Oh, this, Mm -hmm. this is what we could have, you know, could have done Mm -hmm. to solve it. And a sci-fi about like paragraph
1: one, there are no viruses. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) No, but I mean like that plus like, you know, global warming and climate change and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, different, uh, government systems like not existing and you know stuff like that i, I could see that happening like just utopia uh, a rise in in utopia uh it's the year 20
1: there is no more, longer an electoral college
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly or like alternate history of 2020 just being normal mm-hmm. uh one more thing i wanted to touch on in this as far as like the thoughts that these editors different editors had is that i think short form stuff is becoming more acceptable they said novella like stuff is you know is increasing
1: Yeah. And that's another thing that I think I don't do enough. And that also got added to my Amazon cart for potential purchase based on this article. (laughs) They should get a commission from Amazon for this article. But yeah, there's like, there seems to be a lot of like really legit stuff from that you can like just get to your Kindle like really quickly, like novella style like i guess i've always been looking for sort of like the stamp of approval on that stuff maybe that's the wrong way to go about it but
0: yeah hey there it is that's cool yeah and the the point that they made was that you know it's not that big of a deal like some of our favorite books are novellas like they said in the article a christmas carol carol is a novella by our current definitions of mice and men is a novella
2: yeah that was
1: really interesting
0: yeah
2: yeah
1: Definitely. Yeah. You can't become, you can't be like, it's like that whole thing I was talking about with Americana where it's like, you can't be like, it's like you're only serious if we print your book like infinite Jeff style. So it's huge. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's like stupid.
0: So, um, and the last part of this article, they said to conclude each interview, we asked participants to recommend just one or two books particularly positive ones for people who could use an emotional boost right now. So what do you, uh, what if that like made it to your wish list or your shopping cart?
1: I think it was actually <laughs> the very first one. It was again like a check because like earlier on reading the, um, you know, reading about how like there's an explosion in international and like Chinese fiction. I mm-hmm. think I added Waste Tide by Chen Kufan into, mm-hmm. Oh, is that the guy who wrote the Three Body Problem?
0: No, no. Well, okay, but it's translated by the same guy, Ken Liu. Ken Ken Liu. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah.
0: I okay. think okay. so it was translated by the same guy. Yep.
2: Yeah.
1: So I added that to my Amazon cart. Waste Tide
0: sounds cool. Um, what did they have to say? He had a novel out last year. We published a lot of his short stories. He has a really good grasp on technology and the issues around it. And he digs into these cool science fiction concepts. He's just very imaginative and the stories are engaging.
1: Yeah. And on the cover, the cover says the futuristic vision
0: that everybody needs right now.
1: So (laughs) makes sense.
0: Uh, The one I kind of took note of was called the space between worlds, a debut by Micaiah Johnson, which is, and they said that possibly the best multiverse adventure I've read yet.
2: I think it's cool a to of
0: tackle, moment, a, tackle a multiverse kind of story in fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's see what else I put in there just for people to maybe check out anything by Claire North. Someone said, <laughs> so <laughs> the games house series, especially, uh, Suzanne Palmer, Cadwell Turnbull, David Mitchell. Isn't that the guy who did? Yeah. Cloud Atlas, that, that guy, the guy who did, uh, that, um, ghost written is one of his books, other books, I guess. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I saw because the uh, person named dropped the handsmaid's tale. They said, I'll read just the part here. Goldilocks by Laura lamb is basically the handmaid's tale by way of the Martian, but more hopeful. It's a story where five women take charge of their destiny by stealing a spaceship from NASA and plan their own space, space excursion. (laughs) 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 Sounds good. (laughs) Okay. So yeah. uh, Let us know what new sci-fi is worth picking up and how you think, you know, sci-fi might change in the next 10 years. And we'll uh, we'll put a link to that article so you can check it out. Definitely. And sci-fi, that article also had uh, the covers, you know, for a couple of these books. And Mm -hmm. sci-fi is one of the best genres for, like, drawing you in with a cool cover art.
1: Definitely. I mean, both of us us picked books from that article that were featured, covers were featured. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So there you go.
2: Yep.
0: All right, so you ready to uh, kick this first book report off? Yeah.
1: Oh, you're going first, right? Yep, yep. Okay.
0: Here we go. I'm gonna start by saying that some pieces of art are so thoroughly examined that deeper meaning or you know, directions in them uh, have been said to be found where none may actually exist and there's a lot of art where every possible take in the world has been put out there. Shakespeare. Um what yeah what uh, that's what I was going to ask. What is the piece of art or you know art artist you think of first when I say this? And is it it's Shakespeare?
1: I guess it's Shakespeare, but I also think there's there's a thing that we have in common that most people like won't have dissected so crazily, but I definitely personally project a lot of like extra meaning into the lamb lies down on Broadway, the Genesis
2: album. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) It's like, there's a lot of like, there's people who have picked it apart on the internet and stuff, but I like, I feel like I've even gone like a step deeper and been like, no, like Peter Gabriel was on a different level at that point. (laughs) Like I'm like, you know, I'm like the guy in the trailer who's like connecting things with a red string.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree on that front and it's funny that you say that i was gonna mention that album later in this uh book report just because it shares sort of a theme well you know it, with one of the interpretations of the million it shares sort of that theme of and you know i'll, I'll talk about it in a little bit but keep that in mind the lamb lies down on broadway the 19, 1974 double album by genesis
1: yeah well yeah i mean there's okay so there's shakespeare we overanalyze you know landlines down on broadway probably also like potentially uh, like the mona lisa in general just like as a painting like people (laughs) are like it's a self-portrait and then we x-rayed it and it's a double portrait and there's a (laughs) ufo in the background
0: yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's true i mean as far as shakespeare though like you caught my attention with that like i feel like shakespeare though i don't know if the interpretations are uh like debated for shakespeare that much so do you or i feel like it's more set in stone like what everything meant and because we learn about it in school and stuff and there's like right and wrong answers i guess Maybe,
2: <laughs> you know?
1: but i think you know there's like endless like stagings of it and you can like take it through um you know you can take it through all these like different you know, stagings and
0: I don't know. Yeah, there's different takes on it, different placing it in different settings and I I could see that. Okay. Um so keep with that in mind, what I read this week was actually a play. So it's kind of similar to uh Shakespeare and just but let me just start by reading out some of the buzzwords that you can find under the Wikipedia for this play. Um You know, the Wikipedia section titled Interpretations. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's very long. So under this play, you can find the interpretations of political, Freudian, Jungian. So Freud and Jung, uh Philosophical, existential, ethical, Christian, autobiographical, sexual, classical. And psychoanalytical. (laughs) And there's all subsets within each of those. I'm sure I did not dive into them that much. And, you know, with this sort of thing, it seems like this happens, even if the original author like dumps, says straight up, like what it's about, (laughs) like, you know, says, stop doing this, stop coming up with interpretations for what I created But I guess that's part of like, you know, when you release something out into the world, it's no longer yours. So people kind of run run amok with it. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of funny later on in that Wikipedia article for this play, they go into that a little. Uh, And (laughs) I I removed his name because I haven't said it yet, but I'll I'll read this quote here. He tired quickly of quote, the endless misunderstanding end quote, Mm -hmm. as far back as 1955, he remarked, why people have to complicate a thing so simple I can't make out. He was not forthcoming with anything more than cryptic clues, however. Um, Peter Woodthorpe, one of the actors, remembered asking him one day in a taxi what the play was all about. And he said, it's all symbiosis, Peter. It's all symbiosis. So it's, I guess you could say this play is symbiotic in theory. Uh,
2: Shout out to (laughs) Necrophages.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Very, very... Uh, esoteric um, reference reference right there but so for those who don't know symbiosis is a relationship of benefit especially among different species
1: can I take a guess I have like two guesses
0: Okay. All right. You go for it.
1: Well, first of all, you said one how like you maybe like did your thing this week on something that's like based on like title alone, like just like a pure classic, yeah. And and, like multiple interpretations, like over and over, and it's a play. So and like people have picked it apart too much. So I'm guessing it's either don't say yes or no to either one. I'm just going to say two different things, and you can you can decide. It's either a streetcar named Desire or uh death of a salesman
0: no for both neither for <laughs> both neither for neither neither so okay. when i the say the nemesis
1: thing makes me remind me of streetcar named desire how it's like the two like people like yeah, playing. <laughs>
0: playing off each other kind of
2: yeah
0: um no what i uh what i read this week was the play that i had only known as a cultural reference before this week which is the 1953 play, Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett.
2: Mm, okay. You've heard, I'm, I'm Maybe sure I like, should be
1: my third guess. I mean, that's like the third <laughs> famous play out of one. Yeah, Just yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: I'm sure like Frazier or Niles have like name dropped that at some point, but of course. Um, considered one of
1: Godot references in Fraser.
0: <laughs> yes. It's uh, considered one of the most significant English language plays of the 20th century. And uh, I'll say this play is very similar to Seinfeld in that it's about pretty much nothing. <laughs> um, you've got two main characters. You've got Vladimir, uh, aka D.D., just like a nickname, and Estragon, aka Gogo. And they pretty much shoot the shit, and while waiting for Godot, who never arrives, and that's the big thing. He never arrives. And so it's not clear, you know, you're reading the play. It's not clear at all who they are, why they're there. If they've met Godot before, what their relationship is to him, what their relationship is to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only clues is they're wearing like bowler caps or whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and they're standing near a tree. They don't know if they're at the right spot. And, you know, it's a little bit of like dream logic, which, sh- which I would typically like, but, I mean, in this case, I don't know if it grabbed me as much. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And, you know, when I read a play like this, it's always, I can always kind of wonder how much better it would be as the real thing. Because this one reads, it reads so much like a vaudeville act that I'm, I don't know if I would enjoy the play maybe, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's, you know, been very famous. And so Vladimir and Estragon, they are, they're waiting, obviously and while they're waiting, they're doing a lot of bickering. They talk really quickly with each other, like one or two sentences at a time for the most part. And they're kind of just playing off each other and they get each get focused on little on small things. Then kind of they'll break off into their own thoughts. And that's kind of most of the action. So they wait for Godot some more. Some stuff happens. They, uh, or a weirdo guy named Mm Pazzo who has a slave named Lucky who he like has a you know rope tied around his neck and he leads him around Mm -hmm. and those two are kind of like have a symbiotic relationship too and they're kind of a parallel to Vladimir and Estragon who are kind of also symbiotic um, so they have a nonsensical conversation <laughs>
1: between between Vladimir and Estragon. Does one of them seem like the leader, and the other? Yeah,
0: yeah. Vladimir is like probably the smarter one and the more uh, calm and collected one, and Estragon's kind of like all over the place, and he's like real worried about small things. Like he's got he's worried about his boots and stuff, and he's always forgetting stuff. And uh, they kind of. He, he kind of annoys Vladimir, pretty much. So, yeah, they come across Pazzo and Lucky, and they are very strange. They have a, like a nonsensical conversation, for the most part. And, and then this messenger comes, like a, a boy, boy messenger, say, and says, hey, Godot's going to come tomorrow. So hmm. they decide, then they're like, okay, we'll we'll just leave. We don't need to wait for them. They like announce that they're going to leave. And then they don't actually do anything. They just stand in place. And that's the end Mm -hmm. of act one. Nice. And then it's only a two act play. And then roughly the same thing happens in act two. It's the next day. Um, they see Pazzo and lucky again, and they're a little bit different this time around. And then they see the messenger again, who is, the same boy seemingly but claims to be different he comes back and says oh well Godot's is actually going to come tomorrow uh, so they <laughs> then they decide to leave again but then they don't again and then the curtain falls <laughs> nice. so i think one of the famous quotes about this play is that um nothing happens twice nice so it's a play about nothing uh, and that makes it so endlessly open to interpretation. Like, you know,
1: I'm sure that I'm sure that it would like be interesting to have a conversation like with Larry David about waiting for a good it's like that's like the idea. There's like a famous the famous like Seinfeld episode early on is when they're waiting in the Chinese restaurant. Right. Yeah, and they, 50 and they more minutes. Yeah, <laughs> and they and they don't get a table and like all these network executives and stuff were like, no, you can't do this. Like it's too stupid and it's like yeah. too boring and stuff. And he, like, I'm sure he was like screaming in meetings, like,
2: what about waiting for the dog?
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, and yeah, you know, you can say that about a lot of things where it's there's not a lot of action, but it's more about just the idea. Mm-hmm. And you got to give them credit for the idea just the execution didn't like catch me too, too well, but I was going to say my own interpretation of this play is that it's kind of like a purgatory, which I mean, is probably one of the main interpretations, but, mm-hmm. uh, and that's where you get kind of the parallels to the lamb lies down on Broadway where it's like a purgatorial dreamscape where, you know, you progress isn't real. You're just kind of, it's like the Sisyphus pushing up the boulder and all that. And mm-hmm. But another thing that, you know, I think beyond that, the main feeling I got from this play was that it reminded me more of the one I covered right at the beginning of the virus earlier this year. Like, um, I talked about the play, no exit by John Paul Sartre. Yep. And that was like specifically the quote, like hell is other people. Mm-hmm. And that's what I felt from, from Vladimir's perspective. He's just like, so annoyed to be there and his like life goal, his life's purpose is to wait for Godot And it just never, never does anything. It
1: also makes me think about the classic like thing that I'm sure you thought about before is like, what was life like when it was like, you know, okay, like let's meet here. And then it like, doesn't happen. Or like just thinking about how like back in the past, like our parents, you know, only just basically before the smartphone and the and the everyone has a cell phone, of just being like, didn't you like get lost like all the time? Yeah. <laughs> and there was just things where it was like, you know, and like yeah, like one of my uh, like one of my old managers used to say that too. Is like you would get together with your friends as a kid, and it would be like, I guess he's just not coming today. Like, yeah. <laughs> you would just like, I know. not
0: know. How did you keep any appointments or anything? Right. Seemed like I mean, a lot of work.
1: And that's like a thing too that happens in like 1950s books where it's like he woke up, rolled out of bed, and then looked at the like town clock tower to set his watch. And it's like, Dude, that's <laughs> so fucked up. I don't even know what time it is.
0: <laughs> Very true. Uh yeah, I would hate that. <laughs> um but yeah, I, I would say to to kind of wrap this up a little bit, there are definitely small pieces of dialogue in this play that are, that are really vivid and, and insightful and cool and, you know, uh, inventive. But there are also a lot of, there's a lot of tedious sections. There's a lot of tedious parts that come along with uh, reading, reading a play, you know, yeah. the stage directions, for example, let me, let me just, let me read this mess right here. <laughs> This is like, you know, it's 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 a it's meant to be seen. <laughs> this is like a little vaudeville kind of section. Estragon takes Vladimir's hat. Vladimir adjusts Lucky's hat on his head. Estragon puts on Vladimir's hat in place of his own, which he hands to Vladimir. Vladimir takes Estragon's hat. Estragon adjusts Vladimir's hat on his head. Vladimir puts on Estragon's hat in place of Lucky's, which he hands to Estragon. Estragon <laughs> takes Lucky's hat. Vladimir adjusts Estragon's hat on his head. Estragon puts on Lucky's hat in place of Vladimir, which he hands to Vladimir, Vladimir takes his hat, Estragon adjusts Lucky's hat on his head, and that's halfway through, uh, yeah. it just keeps going. on. I
1: mean, you have to imagine that that's like one of those things where it's like, basically, people. there's definitely like professional actors who do this play where it's like, imagine like Rowan Atkinson doing that scene. Oh,
0: yeah,
2: it'd be like, fantastic
1: it's probably been done at that level where it's like these insanely talented comedic actors. It's like that scene. You know? Yeah,
0: <laughs> I know. Definitely. It, it's it, you need to see that not read it. So that was like a little bit hard as far as like the print version. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I can't really, can't really knock it for that, but, um, it's just like a little bit of an annoyance. <laughs> so I'd like to, I have a couple one star reviews cause two of them really struck, struck me. Okay. First one is from Sean and he says, I could never give this a five-star rating because it is just too painful to read regardless of what it achieves. However, to ignore the artistic merit of the play would be an act of pure self conceding ignorance. As Estragon says, people are bloody ignorant apes. I will never read this again or ever go to watch it at a theater, but it is something I look back on and say, what a brilliant idea. Even if I found the reading process quite painful and dull. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, Carol says, "Kind of like waiting for the bus to come in Baltimore." Yeah, and take it from me, I've done a lot of that. Excruciating.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> nice. <laughs> I think both like review. Those seem like those that like type of review where it's a negative review and the author would agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, yep, you got it. It's <laughs> exactly what's happening.
0: So yeah, uh, yeah. Another another classic
1: tackled tackled nice it's always good to t- it's it's awesome to do a play or, like you said a novella that's a classic because it's like yep now i know what that's about
0: yeah so if you were at a book sale like let's say two weeks ago when i was at a book sale and you were like scrolling through and you saw waiting for godot would you pick it up because you were like i've heard of that
2: yeah
1: yeah probably would i mean i've actually yeah. i've actually read um bits and pieces here and there as like uh in film school I think we got oh, like we got like not the full book but like handouts you know like when your teacher yeah. like scans a few pages and you know talks about it okay so yeah yeah a classic <laughs> all right uh good job
0: thank you i'm going to crack a beer uh, and wait for your book report wow
1: uh so mine is my book report this week is kind of like the opposite of a classic and i'm actually surprised because like we were talking about with all the sci-fi and stuff it's like oh, i'm never reading in the modern era just because it's going to take a lifetime and more to get through the classics um but the book that i am reading that i'm reporting on this week is um is from 2012 Um, which I'm excited to announce just because when I was writing this book, all my notes down, I was like, Oh, it's like actually like a new book. Um, But before I say the title of the book, I will ask you about the subject of the book. Do you ever remember me like telling you anything about someone named Athanasius Kirschner? Kirschner?
0: I don't think so. (laughs)
1: Okay. So there's this... This whole reading comes from... No, I I didn't expect you. I didn't expect you to remember anything about that. But this whole reading, this reading, this whole book basically comes from, you know, like, you know, one night you're online or something or you read a Wikipedia article or an article and it's just like, what the fuck am I reading? And then you like want to know more. Yeah. So... The that happened to me where I was like basically reading I, I I have to believe that this might have somehow been connected with you know how we've talked about Francois Rabelais mm-hmm. and he's like from the fifteen hundreds or the sixteen hundreds, I think he's from the sixteen hundreds maybe the 1500s i'm not sure but i have to like believe like that that's like the older style stuff so it's like maybe they're connected in some way or whatever but eventually somehow on wikipedia i was reading about athanasius Kirscher, who was born in 1602 and died in 1680 he was a german jesuit scholar and a polymath who published around 40 major works most notably in the fields of comparative religion geology and medicine, so there's this guy, and I, I you know, it, to, to read about him is like to read about him on Wikipedia was obviously not enough because I went online and bought this book that in 2012 it's acknowledged as like the first like general purpose biography about this guy, mm-hmm. it's just kind of fascinating in itself. And my, the book that I'm talking about today is called a man of misconceptions by John glassy. He wrote it in 2012. And then the sub quote to the title is a man of misconceptions, the life of an eccentric in an age of change. So let me tell you a little bit about like Athanasius Kircher, and then I'll go into why I had to read like an entire biography of him. So, it sounds like when I told you that first sentence from his Wikipedia doesn't it sound like like, oh, that's probably someone who you like learned about in history class, but then you just like skipped over like
0: who they are, kind of thing yeah, it seems like uh important
1: yeah, a historical it, figure <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, this guy was like you know whatever, blah blah, but who Athanasius Kircher really is is he's basically a poster child for what an academic was before like the Renaissance of scientific thought and like like, kind of like before the Renaissance, like he was living up into like a time of like, and that's why the book is called uh, The Life of an Eccentric in an Age of Change because he's like living through, he's like a, like a quote unquote scholar and polymath living through a time that's sort of like pre-scientific method and scientific thought. So the point where this gets interesting is, like I said, he published around 40 major works, most notably in the fields of comparative religion, geology, and medicine. But the thing about Athanasius Kircher, which is amazing, and it's so funny to read this book. This book is hilarious; like it makes you laugh like all the time. Yeah. And I and I don't know why. Like like on the surface, I wouldn't come to you and be like, "Dude, read this biography about this guy from the 1600s." It's gonna make you your side split. You would like not believe me, right? <laughs> yeah. But the thing about Athanasius Kircher is that basically. Back then, when you were like, I'm a scholar, I'm like a polymath, like I know all these things about all these different subjects, everything that he wrote is raw. <laughs> <laughs> so-
0: know, a guy like that. (laughs) (laughs) Who? (laughs) Uh, Someone I used to work with. I don't know. Uh (laughs) (laughs) No names there. (laughs) No No names.
1: But like, yeah, so basically like he is this person who was like for his time, like well traveled and for his time had a lot of knowledge. But the whole purpose of John Glassie telling you about this guy is that is to give you like context into like kind of like that that era that we're not used to like now nowadays it's just like an accepted fact like from when you're a child like two plus two equals four like like the like the leaves are green because of photosynthesis and we and why and answer and like just cause and effect and like everything but Mm -hmm. athanasius Kircher comes from a time where he was like hey i'm a scholar so that I, what makes me a scholar is that I wrote a thousand page book about what's inside the earth, but I've never studied it. (laughs) Like, it's just like, he would just like make like maps and like drawings of things that he had never experienced or never seen. And been like, that's what's inside the
0: earth. (laughs) Just like hollow (laughs) earth theory or something.
1: Yeah, no. Yeah. There's like all these different things where he did like drawings and like, and maps that don't exist maps of china even though he's never <laughs> set foot in china <laughs> that's and amazing just, like, all these amazing things that yeah, and i i actually you know what i think my path of knowledge that eventually got me to here is that um because you know how i love i i used to tell you i love the in francois Rabelais. he has all of the fictionalized books yeah And he has all these lists of books that were never published and never made and everything like that. And I think like that, I probably, probably got on the Kirshner path, Kirshner path because of that, Where it's like, and I found this great, like this awesome New York times book review article that I'm going to read two paragraphs from, but it's just so fascinating because it's like back then, and, and also like really interesting things. Like I remember something in this book, like in that I was reading about it, where it's like back then you can't, you like if we can't wrap our heads around what it was like to wait for Godot, you know, like just missing appointments, like basically like <laughs> throughout your adult life, just missing appointments, getting lost and all that stuff like that's So alien to us now. It's like so beyond alien, the type of things that happen in Kersher's life. Like I remember there was this part of this book where it was like. He was commissioned by some religious leader, not a Pope, but like some religious leader or somebody in the church to do something. And then it was like, okay, so I'm going to travel from, where did he end up? He like ended up in Rome, but he was born in Germany or something like that. And I remember there's this part of the book where he's like, okay, so I'm supposed to, I'm, I'm commissioned to write this book and I'm traveling from Germany to Italy, but I'm just going to take like a, like a, like a 12 year, like, side like bender where i go to another country and just like don't like get that done yeah you know and it's like we can't even think of that nowadays but it's like you know he he did stuff where it was like and we don't know about this three years of his life because he was like supposedly traveling from one country to another but probably was just like chilling <laughs> um, so it's so crazy, like the expanse of time and all these different things. So let me read two paragraphs. This is two different paragraphs. They're not right next to each other, but I singled them out from this New York times book review. Cause it's, it's a, it's a cool review of, of what John glassy did with, with a man of misconceptions. So, and this article, like I said, New York times book review, and it's by Jad. Oh, it's by Jad Abumrad. That's so funny. He's the host of, he's the co-host of, um, radio lab but this is oh, from cool 2013 so that's so funny now i want to talk to jad augum about athanasius Kircher. <laughs> anyway uh so the article starts scientists talk about paradigm shifts as if they happen suddenly one day there's a paradigm the next day bam another one comes along but oh That leaves out the fun parts, the gray zones, the in-between periods of experimentation, play, and openness. When it comes to the history of the so-called scientific revolution, that binary telling would certainly skip over one of history's most bizarre and largely forgotten thinkers, the 17th century Jesuit priest, Athanasius Kircher. And then, you know, down like a few paragraphs down, Kirchner might well have become his era's Leonardo da Vinci. The problem was, as Glassy tells us again and again, he just got so many things wrong. If only Glassy didn't emphasize, if only Glassy didn't emphasize this point, if only he had made more fun with his subjects wrongness and sheer chutzpah. Who Kircher would publish an enormous illustrated guide to China, arguing that the Chinese are secretly Christian without ever setting foot in China. And you have to give him style points for titling a 916 page treaties. And this is all one title, something that he made up. This is like one of those, like, you know, this is like real life Francois Rabelais. So it's <laughs> 900, 916 page treaties, the magnet or the art of magnets, in three parts, in which the universal nature of the magnet, as well as its use in all arts and sciences, is explained by a new method. In addition, here are revealed through all kinds of physical, medical, chemical, and mathematical experiments many hitherto unknown secrets of nature from the powers and prodigious effects of magnets, as well as other concealed motions of nature in elements of stones, plants, animals, and oolessian things. <laughs>
2: that's the name of his
1: 916 page book
0: so the next thing i I have to ask are you going to read one of his books
1: i will never read an athanasius kircher book (laughs) that much i don't i don't think i would be able to get
0: through it but what's i have a question i i've is there anyone out there who despite this believes that he is correct is there like a cult that believes his stuff if or only, is it just like so obvious that it's wrong if
1: only i would join up but no and then he like and kurt and like glassy just goes through the novel like again and again kind of just saying like and then this happened this so he does have like a good message at heart i think the like the book opens up with a quote basically being like you know even if like we look back now and think like wow that's so stupid but like at the time it's like not stupid like he was a very like If you think about it, it's almost like Athanasius Kircher in the wackiest way possible achieved in real life, like what we think of now. Like, you know, the common conversation, like, Mark, imagine if you went back in time knowing what you know about electricity, you know, Mm -hmm. like that kind of thing. And then you'd be like, oh, I was like, I'd be so accomplished. And the thing is, like, Athanasius Kircher was very accomplished, but he was just the world's biggest bullshitter. <laughs> he was basically like a crazy guy you know who like rose to fame by just being like yeah i know i totally know that <laughs> you know and just and it's so like fascinating and he's like he is like really like really crazy like he well another cool thing about him is that there are things that like possibly he can be credited with like Like, if you look, if you kind of, like, take him a little bit more seriously, he could be one of the first people who, like, kind of considered, like, maybe, like, germs are real. You know, he had very abstract thoughts where it's, like, it's also possible but not fully known that he may have been one of the first people to, like, use a microscope, like, that kind of thing. Um, So he was, like, doing all this, like, math and, like, wacky stuff and, like, thinking that he knows Uh, about volcanoes.
0: I'm sorry if if I missed this, but where is this guy from?
1: He's from Germany. He was oh, okay. a German Jesuit scholar and then he ends up like in Rome and, and you know just like any any other person like in that sort of like semi-academic profession his like career goes through ups and downs of people being like you don't know what you're talking about but like other like you know he's just so wacky like He would invent these things, but then he also invented things that were really fun and cool, like, like glassy doing the research about his like laboratories and where he did establish himself in libraries and stuff. He would like invent things where it's like this statue can like speak, but really it's a, it's like a, like a secret, like hidden passageway. So you can fuck with people. And like stuff like that. Like he would do like weird things like that. He's he's also known for inventing a speaking trumpet. And some say, even though this isn't proven, some say that he notoriously created a cat piano, which was he put <laughs> he put different like size cats and of different ages and stuff, like in a box and would like play them by poking them and
0: stuff. Oh god, that was like uh <laughs> they did that in um what's it called? The Terry Gilliam movie, I forget. Munchausen, they did that. He had right. like a so player piano he where he's poking he, people.
2: Yeah, he, <laughs> might have known,
1: he might have known it, Kershaw. Like that's like the type of person who would like know about that. Like yeah. another part of the thing, another part of the thing by Jad rod says, he was a master of optical illusions, a, cart- a cryptographer, an early proponent of a universal symbolic language, maybe the first person to discover germ theory of disease and maybe the first person to use a microscope. And he just like, he was crazy. Like he wrote like all these things that he didn't know about, but then something <laughs> he did know about. And he just was like, so, so, so crazy.
0: It's just a testament to confidence. Mm-hmm. It can get you a it long is, way.
1: It is testament to confidence. He's basically just confident and kind of saying like, listen, if no one else is going to talk about these things, then here's my book about what the earth is. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's just, and people are like, okay, you know, like, what does it really mean?
0: I just uh-huh. remember in school we had to like watch those or we watched like, uh, you know, low budget movie about how like Galileo all his like theories and he had to prove them to certain people. And he had like adversaries and stuff. I just like, <laughs> I could picture this guy as like the bad guy in those movies. <laughs> like you're right. still wrong. A pound of feathers weighs way more than a pound of like steel.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, basically, this was this was a Wikipedia article that went into, wow, someone actually wrote a book about this guy, and I just loved it. I mean, and obviously I don't read nonfiction all the time. Uh, I have a one-star review here from Ron on Goodreads, and I guess – I guess I could like get on board with this. I don't know if I, I would never give this book a one-star review because it's so fun and just so funny and everything. But basically Ron said, you know, a really, a truly interesting historical character, Kircher is reduced to a cartoon by an author hell bent on making sure the reader understands Kircher was often wrong and arrogant and a con man and unequal to the intellects of his time, et cetera, et cetera. So basically what he said, like, and I think maybe even Jad Albumrad was pointing to that in his New York Times thing as well that like maybe glassy was too hard on him but i don't know how you wouldn't take that angle because it's just so funny and it's like it's in that like vein of like um you know uh we were just talking about terry Gilliam, um like life of brian yeah and and holy grail and you know everything like that it just feels so what is that what are they called having a brain fart monty python Monty Python. It's very Monty. He's very Monty Python. Yeah, he's like it's like this guy and Francois Rabelais. They would be good friends. Nice. It's just and it's a wacky
0: ride. So yeah, a man
1: of misconceptions.
0: That sounds awesome. Yeah. Is it it a long read?
1: No, it's a 273 pages. Okay. Sounds good. Eccentric in an age of change. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. This has been Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Instagram, and Twitter at SB of the Podcast. You can also email us at gmail.com. Give us comments, suggestions, corrections, whatever you're feeling, and we'll see you next time.
0: See ya.